0: Welcome to Staying Connected, a podcast where I talk to people about their stories with VEDS, Marfan, Lois Dietz, and related vascular and aortic connective tissue conditions. This is your host, Katie, and before we get into the show, I want to remind you that the views, information, and opinions in this podcast are those of the individuals involved, and the information presented does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. Any opinions that I express in this podcast are my own and not of my employer. Hi everyone, and welcome back to Staying Connected. I have VEDS, or Vascular Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, and on this show, I talk to other people about their stories with VEDS and similar conditions like Marfan Syndrome and loeys Dietz. Today, we're going to talk to Jackie Fish, whose son George was diagnosed with VEDS as a child and is now 24 years old. Jackie is going to share some of what he's been through and what it's like as a parent navigating his diagnosis and medical events. Before we go over to the interview with Jackie, I have a couple announcements. First, I'm currently planning for the fall season of the show, and I'm planning to record interviews in September. If you or a family member has vEDS, Marfan, Lois dietz or a similar vascular or aortic connective tissue disorder, and you want to share your story on the podcast, please let me know. I have included a link in the episode show notes for you to fill out and get on the pre-interview schedule. Second, Since the last episode with Ben Weissman on August 12th, the show has spread to an additional 16 countries, which means Staying Connected is now reaching 100 countries around the world. If you are a new listener, welcome. I hope this show is helpful to you, and I am so floored to see it continue to spread around the world. It is really just so exciting. If you want to support Staying Connected and help it continue to reach people who need to hear it join my Patreon. For $5 or $10 a month, you can support the production of this show and content about Veds, Marfan, and Louis Deeds. I've linked the Patreon in the episode show notes, and as always, I want to say thank you to everyone who has been supporting the show. I couldn't do it without your continued support. My top tier patrons are listed in the episode show notes. This show will release every other Saturday through September, so make sure you subscribe on your podcast player so you don't miss any future episodes. And stick around at the end of the show for a preview of the next episode and some information about upcoming events. Hey, Jackie. Thank you so much for joining me on the podcast to share your experience as a parent and your son George's experience as a person with VEDS. Do you want to introduce yourself to everybody?
1: Yeah, hi. Thank you for uh, inviting me to join you. I'm Jackie Fish and my son George has VEDS, diagnosed when he was seven and he's now 24. So we've been on quite the journey
0: yeah and i think um so usually you know the parents i've talked to are parents of younger children and so i want to talk about his diagnosis but i also you know after we talk about that i do want to talk about your experience as a parent so how Mm -hmm. you know we have a lot of stuff to cover in this interview Mm
2: -hmm.
1: how like what brought up his diagnosis the normal thing way I think he, as for children, he was five weeks premature. He was very small. He was failure to thrive and he was covered in bruises. He had reflux when he was eating. He didn't want to eat. He was taken into hospital when he was six months old because he wasn't putting on weight. He was covered in bruises. Social services came to talk to me. I showed them how just putting like a Band-Aid on his arm caused the bruise. So, then they started investigating, they looked at Von Willebrands, they couldn't find any clotting disorders and they sent us home when he was about sort of 18 months to two years old and the bruising was much worse and he was moving around and he was cutting his head open. And I went back to them and I said, something's not right. I knew as a mother, my instinct, it wasn't right. And that was when they started investigating. They sent us to a rheumatology appointment at Greater Dorman Street. And we were very lucky. Professor Rodney Graham was there. He, he was an expert on EDS. And he looked took one look at George and said he has EDS. So that was great. We went away. He thought the hypermobility type. And we lived with that for a few years. And then the internet started to sort of take off and so this was the early 2000s and I started looking at literature and I'd got involved with the EDS Support UK in this country, doing some fundraising for them and stuff. And I realized he was probably vascular. He's got very typical facial features, very thin skin with his veins going throwing, throwing through, very high mobile hands and feet, very typical so I went back to the pediatrician and we talked to a geneticist and she sent some photos to Professor Mike Pope, who was pretty much the only person who knew anything about vascular EDS in the UK in those days. And he took one look at George and said, yeah, it's no doubt in my mind. But we had to wait quite a long time for genetic testing. The blood test didn't exist in 2005. But eventually we got him tested and yes he was positive with a splicing error i think because obviously there are different types of genes problem yeah. yeah mutations thank you <laughs> and, and uh, my husband and i were tested we don't have it our other son hasn't been tested but has no symptoms so i think we, we he, george is assumed to be a de novo mutation yeah and then Really there was no information in those days, There was nothing. We were told to go away, have a normal childhood as much as you can. Nothing'll happen, or very unlikely to happen before puberty. Don't let him do contact sports, but other than that, so we went on holidays, we went on safari in Africa, we he played football and cricket and, you know, tennis and kind of got on with life. And how did that how did that feel as a parent? Because you got very little information. It was difficult. It was really difficult. And I can remember going to, I got involved with EDS UK and they had a, a conference and I went along and they had an afternoon session on rare types of BDS and all these people with vascular EDS descended on this guy. <laughs> The difference <laughs> and I met people with SQEGS including um, I think Annabelle had just been diagnosed at that point and everybody was there this community and honestly it was life-changing suddenly I met all these people with this condition who understood what I was talking about was just incredible and then Facebook took off and we got on all the groups and Annabelle's challenge took off and suddenly there was support and that was life-changing for me George doesn't want to know. I think that's quite typical in young people. He just wants to get on with his life and not have to do with it, uh, not think about it, other than when he has to go to hospital. Yeah, But for me, it was life-changing, yeah. And so
0: I know he's been through a lot since his diagnosis. <laughs> do you want
1: to tell us mm-hmm. a little bit about that? So it, we were fine up until he was 16, and then he's had a pneumothorax, which necessitated surgery and was quite a while but then after that he got better although he lost the use of his trapezius muscle that's uh, something to do with a nerve something to do with the pneumothorax nobody quite knows so one of those weird feds things but after that he was okay he finished school he went to university and then when in august 2020 he had a had an operation on his foot one of his toe joints disintegrated he had to have some surgery on it and whilst he was recovering from that he suffered bilateral vertebral artery dissections very very frightening very very painful Um, and that was it that was the beginning of suddenly everything just falling apart
0: (laughs) did that happen in the hospital
1: no no this happened at home Um, we had no idea it presented as a stiff neck and headache i didn't even know vertebral artery dissection was I didn't even know about vertebral arteries you know and I I, and you know you know you've got beds, you know you're meant to worry about every pain and everything else but you know I was on the phone to the doctors every day we were in lockdown but I was on the phone to the doctors every day and they were like well you know it's a stiff neck try codeine try diazepam. try you know (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I had a physio come and have a look at it. And then he kind of went, oh, it's a bit inflamed. I think just some, you know, ibuprofen or something. Uh, It was just nobody really thought. Arteries. Arteries, no. So, uh, and eventually we did go to the hospital and they scanned him and they were like, yeah, he's got two dissected arteries. You're not going anywhere. But they healed. And he went back to university, did a master's. Had a lot of migraines, but on that, a lot of anxiety. But on that, it was fine. Uh, and then in January last year, he had a carotid artery dissection. So we were hoping it was going to be a one-off. We were hoping we weren't going to kind of, but no, it, it just—it's just slowly snowballed. And I think this is the thing that happens if you have the type of mutation that's going to cause these problems. It seems to just. Especially, I see a lot of young people, particularly men in their 20s, are having a lot of serious problems with their beds. So, yeah. So, he had the carotid dissection in January, but that healed as well. Then he had a lung bleed in June last year, which I think was because he'd had COVID. That was very frightening. He was literally woke up coughing up blood. That was really scary. And then um in November last year, he had a headache, not very bad, for a couple of days. We were just thinking that perhaps we should go to the hospital and get him checked out. And he woke up having what appeared to be a seizure, really scary. Um, he went to hospital. He was very, very ill. He was put into an induced coma for four days to protect his brain. They thought he'd had a stroke. He, def- he, had, he had a dissected vertebral artery again. They thought it had a stroke, but in fact now they say it wasn't a stroke. It was something called PRES, which I can't say, but I'll try. Posterior reversible encephalopathy, encephalopathy syndrome. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Can't say it, and it's the swelling of the brain as a reaction to the dissection. And that's really rare. Very, very rare. Very rare. Uh, the, the neurologist had to Google it, but it the Effects of it were stroke like he woke up with left sided weakness, but you know, started to make a good recovery, came home with physio and OT. And then two days later, his bowel perforated. So we went back to hospital. They tried, they gave him three days to see if it would repair itself. It didn't. He got sepsis and he had to have his bowel removed, his colon removed. So he now has a permanent ileostomy. Mm-hmm. Which is really life changing and care wise for us. You know, he's lost a lot of independence. He's living at home. He's it's you know, he's had to learn how to deal with his ostomy, his stoma. I've had to learn how to deal with it. The anxiety is through the roof now. Really through the roof. And he's twenty-four now. He's twenty-four he's working luckily he has a job he can work from home so he is back working we were very cautious about getting him up and about after the surgery because he had a full open surgery they wouldn't go in laparoscopically because they felt that the well surgeon said to me i'm not using metal instruments on his bowel i want to use my hands Mm. you know it's he's too delicate so, we were a bit care- careful about getting him up and about. And unfortunately, the knock on of that, whilst it meant that he didn't tear any stitches or anything, was that he got a pleural effusion. So, he was in hospital for three weeks again after that. And they drained three liters of fluid out of his pleural space. So, that was horrible.
0: Yeah. There's like, so there's a lot there that he's been through,
1: especially in the last, what, year and a half or so? Yes. Yes. And I, it's interesting. And I was talking, you know, we've talked about this. Uh, there is this knock on sort of domino effect that seems to happen when you have one thing and it leads to the next and the next. And it's something I've talked to specialists about and they, uh, they agree with me. It's a, it's a problem. And so I'm, I've sort of, I'm interested in finding out information about how we can, prepare hospitals and medics to care for patients who are in hospitals so that they don't have this sort of escalation and domino effect.
0: I think that that's a really good thing. You know, it's a nice it's a nice part right now to like kind of pause mm-hmm. if you're a medical professional mm-hmm. listening to this. Like, I know that this is definitely a good thing to explore and Shireen Shalhoub has done talks I believe where she to where she discusses different things and that they do in the hospital like loading with vitamin C or Like not overloading the vascular system with fluids Bowel regimens, you know when you're in the hospital to make sure that you're having bowel movements and not getting constipated Like there's all sorts of things that probably need further exploration but I don't think that this is a really Unfortunately, I don't think it's a super abnormal experience to go into the hospital with Vez no. with one thing, and then everything else just starts to build up. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, that bowel perforation that he had was two days after he came home. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah.
1: really frightening.
0: Yeah. You mentioned the anxiety that mm-hmm. has come from all of this. <laughs> I imagine that's both for George and for you as a parent. Do you want to talk a mm-hmm. little bit more about that?
1: Yeah, it's 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 really difficult. Um, everything that's happened to George has happened at night or on waking, so he really struggles to go to sleep, and he struggles. He he at the moment he doesn't want to be left in the house alone when he's asleep. So you know we that's fine, but it means somebody else has to be here. But he's twenty four years old. He's he's not a child. So, you know, I, 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 I'm sort of walking the balance between caring for him and managing the anxiety and not, but not treating him as a child. Um, He's right. an adult. And, 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 you know, also uh, for, for us, it's very hard to, to leave him. It's hard, hard for us to go out. It's hard for us. I mean, we are only six months. Away from this terrible experience. So, you know, he's, it's, it's early days, but, you know, we can't never go away overnight again. And at the moment, you know, I'd really struggle to trust anybody else to be here. Nobody else has the knowledge I have. Nobody else knows how to manage everything. And my emergency care pack and the way I, behave in the emergency room i've developed over the last five years and it works (laughs) i've done a lot of work with annabelle's challenge on the emergency care project and i've put a lot of what i my knowledge into helping put their pack together because um so yeah there's a lot of anxiety and how how do you manage it it's um it's really hard you know traditionally you'd have cognitive behavioral therapy but that teaches you not to catastrophize but how do you not catastrophize events? That's the thing we're all scared of, isn't it? The catastrophe. The thing that happens, you go from happily walking down the street, watching television, whatever it is, to, you know, an arterial dissection. I mean, George literally got out of bed one morning and went, ow, and his bowel perforated. He wasn't doing anything. Yeah, He wasn't sitting on the toilet, He, you know, nothing. He was just literally stood up. So, how do we deal with that? How do we manage that anxiety? How do we live with this condition? Um, it's really difficult. It's yeah. really difficult, and everybody in the vets community knows that. It was difficult before things happened, but once you've had a cat- you know a really catastrophic event, it's through the roof. Yeah, um, I, I I don't have an answer. I I have. Some strategies that we use, but I don't have an answer to that question.
0: Yeah, and I I want to talk about those strategies you use, and then I want to hear about some of the things that you know we've. Let's talk about those first because I can just okay
1: off on a tangent. Okay. Like yeah, what strategies? <laughs> yeah, what strategies do well, you use? Um, acceptance and commitment therapy, I think, is really powerful. Mm-hmm. It's something I looked at a lot when I was working with EDS. Running a sport group for people with have mobile EDS and a lot of pain, um, and I think that's really helpful to not get involved in your in your in your anxiety to to notice it, but not to get t- caught up in it. To sort of separate yourself from it, to accept what where you are and what you're in, and it is about living in the moment. You know, I, at this moment in time, I'm well, so I'm just going to have to enjoy that whilst I can. I've kind of explored this with my therapist, obviously I have a therapist, I, I wouldn't be here today if I did. And, <laughs> and we've come to this sort of conclusion that you almost have to live parallel lives. So, uh, you know, this is our life and every so often I have to sort of cross over into this life. And then when we, as we can, I kind of get back into this life, but it, it's becoming more difficult.
0: Yeah, I mean, so that one life is, you know, mm. things are going okay. Mm. Things are, you know, very yeah. normalized. You're hanging yeah. out with people, maybe you're going out. Yeah. You know, just yeah. living your normal life. And then the other, the other parallel there is, there's been a medical event. We're going to deal yeah. with that,
1: and whatever. We and put everything after, else on hold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and one of the problems is that when we're on this this path, the happy path. Mm -hmm. we don't really want to get off it so we sit we sit we sit on those symptoms (laughs) and we say um i'll give you an example um two days ago george has a patch of skin on his back which is some scarring and it's very thin and it's very vulnerable i have a few around his body Uh, he caught it on the back of his chair so it's on the base of his spine he caught it on the back of his chair and he tore it so you know, should heal, okay, I put a dressing on it. I looked at it yesterday and I said, doesn't look it it's clean, it's healing, but I think it should be looked at by a doctor or a nurse get it dressed properly. I'm not going there, I'm not going to hospital if it's if it's not you know I'm not doing it <laughs> um, and you know I don't want to go to I don't want to go to the doctor. I don't want to it it it'll be okay, I shouldn't have shown it to yeah, she said I shouldn't have shown it to you. You're you're panicking. So I said, right, you know, well, it's your body. You're you're grown up, right? So the compromise was: if I don't like the look of it tomorrow morning, we go and get it checked out. This morning it was infected. <laughs> so,
0: <laughs> <No>.
1: <laughs> yep, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean that is, and we should have gone yesterday, but you know, you, it's just like. I don't want to go to the doctor every single week. I and want to have a week where that, we yeah. don't do it. I'm sure you do. So, <laughs> but I'm um, I'm his mom, and for me, I just I'm constantly right. Let's go and get this checked out. Let's go and get this checked out. Let's go and you know let I, I don't want to be responsible. I want somebody. You know, can I please get? Can somebody else? Yeah, um deal with this, not me. <laughs> well, let's talk more about that.
0: Like as. Um, As a parent of an adult now we've really? we've talked about this briefly you've touched on it briefly yeah. a couple times in this interview what has that been like now that he is an adult like how do you how do you balance this
1: and what does it feel like it's hard it's hard i mean you know i'm a carer george is also autistic spectrum so uh, very high functioning very very intelligent but you know that comes with some problems and one of those is extreme anxiety so I am a carer and I do have to look after him and I do have to nurse him to a degree especially when he's been in hospital it's as a mother I sort of tend to revert to being a mother and which means I treat him more like a child than I should because he's my child (laughs) and you know it's quite difficult to draw those boundaries and actually know you know uh you're you're not a child and you know you you have autonomy and it's up to you this is up to you that's up to you and also i'm 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 on such a mission to try and you know get raise awareness talk to hospitals you know talk to you do all these things um sometimes i forget just to be like to enjoy my son for himself mm. you know I'll go in in the morning you know every morning I'll go in and say how are you you know what hurts what you know and we took t- and immediately start talking about his condition instead of just you know we have sort of you, you it's so easy to lose just being normal yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, and me yeah, so, so, so everything we talk about it's is about the condition, um, because I'm on, high, I'm, and because I'm on high alert, because I'm trying to do everything and sort everything out and do this and do that. And have you taken your pills? You know, you need to eat. You know, do you want me to help you with your, your stomach? Or actually, how about we just sit down and watch a movie together or have a conversation? Yeah. Uh, so, so
0: i have, it, yeah yeah
1: yeah absolutely absolutely so um yeah. Uh, it's, I'm sure every parent of an adult who needs a degree of care will say the same. You, you, you just need to remember that he he's a person who wants to have fun and he doesn't want to think about it all the time.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I must be very, very annoying as well. <laughs> you find
0: your mum annoying? <laughs> no. <laughs> I actually, I really... um. That's a really, I'm sure she's listening to this too. So hi, mom. Um, I, at the beginning, I felt more cognizant of like the type of hug had changed. Like everything was more gentle and fearful. And, and I was very like resistant to that, but we talked about it. And over time, I think like she's gotten calmer, like she, When things happen, she kicks into gear, but Mm. on a day-to-day basis, like, I'm not having a major medical event right now, so it's kind of that parallel life kind of thing that you're talking about. That's that parallel life thing, that's what you have to do, yeah. Yeah, and so we Mm. talk about all sorts of Mm. things that aren't Mm. (laughs) related to that, Yeah, and we're both, like, very much you know, want to advocate and things too. So we will talk about that, but it's not a whole lot about like, well, how's your body today? How's, you know? And I think that when we've both grown so much in it that when she does ask about something like that, I'm not immediately like, oh, I don't want to talk about it because I understand that she's in a space where she's worrying and that's an experience mm-hmm. all in her all in her own right. Like she, she is, entitled to that (laughs) like feeling. Yeah. And it's not for me to say like, oh, you shouldn't feel that. Um, so we, you know, we talk about it. Yeah.
1: I mean, I think George does use me to mitigate his anxiety a lot as well. So it's like, I'll tell you about it, you worry about it, and I then don't have to. (laughs) So Yeah. I took a lot of that on for a long time. And from his brother and my husband as well, you know, that I I worry about everything. Everybody else can just enjoy their lives and not have to worry. And I'll take it all on, but not good for my mental health. No, you have to take care of yourself too. So I am trying very hard to share more. My husband has taken on a lot more of the caring duties and worry, but... I'm the medically minded one. I'm the one who's done all the research. I'm the one who's put together everything. I have all the knowledge. So it's it's difficult. But um
0: Yeah. Yeah. I think that it's good that your husband is also getting like more taking on some of that because I think there's so much as a as somebody a carer, like that you have to be able to take care of yourself too, or else you'll burn out or lose your patience or yeah. you know, there's so many yeah you need to have your own life too. I want to talk about, you know, the you mentioned earlier in the episode, the kind of growth of support and resources that has come about. And we've talked about this before. There's been a huge kind of blossoming in the support area. But that doesn't mean that we're done, right? So what what kind of resources after you've been through all of this? Like what resources have been the most helpful and what
1: do you wish For, like, as we continue to grow? So, I think the Facebook groups have been incredible for making connections around the world. And, you know, how did I find you? Through the group, the Facebook groups and everything, people posting on that. And the support and advice I've had, particularly when George's been in the hospital, have been incredible. And I've connected with a lot of people in the US who helped me when he. Was in hospital with, particularly when he had the bowel rupture. So that's been really helpful. And the emergency care package that we put together for Annabelle's challenge when we were doing that project, you know, I put a lot into that, but I also have got a lot out of it. And and we've got this, you know, I didn't know about the med- the the ambulance marker that you can have, and I don't know if you have those, but you you know, a lot of information and the internet is. I know it's a dangerous place but it's also very useful. Yeah. But I think more than anything the ability making connections and meeting people and talking to people with similar experiences and then having the resources to take to the medics because they don't have the knowledge. So as I said earlier we've we've you know we've got this incredible emergency pack it works you go in and I'm trying. I've been into our hospital and I've spoken to the medics. So when George comes in, they all know who he is. They're on him straight away. And, you know, that's something I'd like to take around every hospital in the country if I could, because it works. But what I did find was once we were in hospital, there was a real problem with post operative care and being sent home too soon. And, not really understanding the dangers of becoming constipated and that sort of thing. So there's loads of work still to be done, but I think we've got communities that can do that now and that's what's brilliant. Yeah,
0: I think it's kind of magical. So when you think about, let's dive into that a little bit, like the post-operative care and- Mm like avoiding constipation. Like I know that these directly relate to what you've experienced with George mm-hmm. in the hospital. Do you want to expand
1: on that a little? It was just, uh it felt very chaotic. Now, the National Health Service in this country is amazing and all our care is free, but it is very, very stretched at the moment. And we didn't find it was, you know, you could you could give all the information to one person. So his surgical team are amazing. They liaised with his specialists. Everything they did, everything exactly as they should. They they were amazing. But when he went back with to respiratory care, they they didn't know anything. <laughs> um, so things aren't getting passed on, and I didn't have any resources to give them to say this is what you need to be aware of the physios who came in out post-operatively wanted to get george out of bed immediately and i was a bit like i don't think you should but on the other hand you know you need to do something but he's very delicate they didn't really know what to do with him and once i said i don't really want him to get up for two days they kind of disappeared and didn't come back you know oh okay um so it was very I felt I was constant if I wasn't in the hospital when the next person came into the room, you know, the nurse came into the room and said, We want to give you blood thinners because you'd be in the hospital for two weeks and I'm like, "Mm, you can't do that or at least you need to to be aware of Yeah, of the dangers. Because eventually, as they said, it was safer to have from them to have the blood clot and then be on much more powerful blood thinners. But, you know they should have known that that was something that they shouldn't do. And and it should have been on his notes. But anyway, you know. Yeah. So it's like post-op resources. Yeah. Every day I was there and I was every doctor or nurse who came in, I was repeating myself to. I was saying, saying things over again. You can't give the blood thinners. Please use the spray to take the dressings off or otherwise you're going to rip his skin just all sorts of little things and I did feel like in the emergency room I have a sheet of paper that I just give to them that, that says this is what you can do with well, this is what you can't do um I'd really like something like that a very definitive that can go on its notes and and, and that and I can have lo- you know I have a stack of them so that every person who comes in I can hand one to Yeah, um, I think that would be a great resource. I know we I mean, I've got the the VASA documents, which give very good information. But even that is more about what you can and can't do in surgery, what you can and can't do in emergencies. But what about just somebody lying in bed, right? It's just that regular hospital care. Yeah. Yeah. And I know that that is, you've mentioned a few bits and bobs and I spent my life saying, can I give him vitamin C? Nobody was thinking, you know, surely I should be giving him vitamin C whilst he's in the hospital healing. But if, if it had been written down on his paper from his specialist, maybe yeah. I think I don't know whether it was the care he had that caused this domino effect or whether it is just something that happens. Mm-hmm. I've asked his specialists and they've said, we don't know either. Right. But better care. I just think you can say to your blue in the face to people, if he has delicate tissues, you have to be careful. But I don't think they really understand what that means. What, what, you know, it's like, it, it doesn't you- translate. No, if you give too much fluid, you could, you know, or if you, if you're giving antibiotics using a pump, We've had it where they put it on too fast and they blow in the vein. Little simple things like that. How do you, they just, they don't really, and you'll say it to them and they go, yeah, 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 and then they do it anyway. So, <laughs> yeah, I've seen EDS. So, yeah, you know, I'm sure there were so many anecdotal stories people have of, of things like that happening. Um, let's put them all down together and see if we can come up with a, a little document.
0: I mean, that's a great opportunity for further research, too.
1: Yeah, I think so. I do think so.
0: Yeah. And so as far as the research area, I want to ask you, where are the most important things for you in research?
1: I think the study that didn't happen of the new drug, that was devastating when that got called. I think, you know, we have to get some better I mean, there's lots of studies and all of the care, you know, studies around what care works and doing all that. That's all great. But actually, some actual drug interventions that actually reduce, you know, we could live this condition if he wasn't having dissected arteries and ruptures. We could live with the bruising. We could live with the lifestyle changes. So research to find a drug that actually stops that happening or reduces it enormously. That to my mind is the gold standard. That's the thing we need. Yeah. More than anything. And all of the support and everything else is amazing, but actually <laughs> we need we need some medicine that works.
0: Yeah. And before I let you go today, if somebody was listening to this who has an adult child with VEDs or has just had a child diagnosed with Feds. what kind of advice would you give them based on your experience?
1: Well, number one, let yourself grieve. You know, it's tough, and you can't have a stiff upper lip all the time. There are days when it's just bleak and awful. But then there's, But on the other side of that, actually, there's some amazing, you know, live your lives. And one of the incredible positives of having a child who is living at home, an adult child who's living at home and who I care for is how close we are. I don't know many of my friends who are as close to their 24-year-old sons as I am. And we've had some extraordinary conversations at three o'clock in the morning lying on a hospital bed together, um, that's a very, very precious thing that most people's kids have left home by this age. So I'm very, very lucky in that respect. And so as with everything, there are some amazing silver linings and you just have to find them and enjoy them. It is tough. Of course it's tough. It's a very tough diagnosis to live with. And it comes with some horrible, horrible consequences. But, uh, but you know what? In the moment, right now, things are good. We're happy. We're going to get a pizza and watch a movie together tonight, and I'm really looking forward to that. So, he's my best friend. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you so much for for coming on. You're welcome. I really enjoyed it. Like, really nice to get to know you better.
0: Yes, yeah, so it's been really nice to get to know you better too. And please extend like, my gratitude to George too for allowing you to come on and share his story or pieces of his story.
1: Yeah, no, he, he, was, he was cool about it. So that's <laughs> nice, yeah. All right. All right, thank you so much.
0: Thanks. Thank you for listening to this episode of Staying Connected, featuring Jackie Fish, sharing her experience and her son George's experience with VEDS. Coming up on September 9th, we'll talk to Peter Donato, who has Lois-Dietz syndrome.
2: When I was little, like two or three years old, my mom, don't know how she discovered Marfan, thought I had Marfan. So for the next six or seven years, we went to specialists all over Boston, and they all told her no. He doesn't have Marfan. You're crazy, you know. He doesn't have Marfan. So in 2000, I want to say like maybe 2004, 2005, the Marfan Connective Tissue Clinic at Boston Children's Hospital opened, and she was like, "All right, if they tell me no, it's a no. But if they tell me yes, it means we're where we need to be for care." So went in met with a geneticist, had a couple appointments going back and forth. And the day they were gonna test me for Marfan, the geneticist is like, okay, there's a new condition, relatively new, is somewhere within a year of um, being written. There's a new condition called WASDs. And Peter fits this mold a little better than the Marfan mold. So we're gonna test him first for WASDs. And if this comes back negative, we'll test him for Marfan, and then we'll just run down the line. Because he has a connective tissue disorder, Now we played the game of what? So got tested for, uh, was Dietz that day. And because it was so new, my results also got sent to Johns Hopkins where Dr. Hal Dietz also took a look at them and he gave the, uh, signature of, yep, he's got was Dietz.
0: Don't forget to subscribe to Staying Connected on your podcast player so you don't miss this or any other future episodes. And if you want to share your story on the show, I've included a link to that in the episode show notes. There are a number of upcoming events you can also participate in. On September 2nd, and generally on the first Saturday of every month, you can join me and Bella Marin, also known as the Investigator, on YouTube for a live stream called Real Talk VEDS. We'd love for you to join us. We'll be focusing on emergency experiences with VEDS in our next live stream. On August 31st, you can join the Ehlers-Danlos Society for its event on genetically defined EDS in Ghent. And on September 19th, Oregon Health and Science University's Northwest Aortopathy and Arteriopathy Program, or GAP, is hosting an educational program for patients and family members living with or at risk of aortic dissection. This is an in-person meeting for people in Oregon and Southern Washington, and it's free. Registration is open until September 1st. The Marfan Foundation and its divisions, the VEDS Movement and the Lois-Dietz Syndrome Foundation, recently announced its programming for 2023-2024, to which includes a number of walks that are starting in the fall. Walks that have been announced are St. Louis on October 1st, Cleveland, Ohio on October 21st, Indianapolis on October 22nd, and Nashville, Tennessee on November 4th. That's it for today. If you like the show, I hope you will consider sharing it with your friends on social media to raise awareness of these conditions. You can also support the production of this podcast by joining my Patreon. Thank you so much, and I will see you soon.